Hello and welcome to Somewhere to Believe in, a new podcast from the people who bring you Greenbelt Festival. I'm Paul and I'm the creative director of Greenbelt Festival. I'm one of your hosts for this podcast. Hello, I'm Catherine and I'm your other host for Somewhere to Believe in and the program manager at Greenbelt. If you love very small talk and huge ideas, then this podcast is for you. Hi, Catherine. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Paul? I'm not too bad. We're back again. Back again for episode four. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Did you ever think that you were going to be a podcast host when you applied for your job with Greenbelt? No. I think when I applied for my job at Greenbelt, I was an administrator and very quickly shot up the ranks. That's the way it works, really. If anyone's (laughs) willing, you're straight into the thick of things. For me personally, I I feel like it's given me a bit of confidence because public speaking is always something that's terrified me a little bit. And then if you ask my opinion on things that are important, that terrifies me even more. I think you're doing a great job, Catherine. And I'm not just saying that because you're my co-host. So I've had to do tons of public speaking. So in some ways, even though I'm an introvert, it comes fairly naturally to me. But I've learned loads from you. You ask really much better questions than I do. I waffle, you get straight to the point. Isn't it weird? Because I'm an extrovert. We we did a personality thing in the office once and I came across as an extrovert and I didn't realise that, although you did. <laughs> Those things are always interesting, aren't they, to realise. And in, in fact, we're going to be talking to Sarah Corbett in this episode and it's one of the key things that she's learned in her life that has then informed the way that she does her work I think it's it's quite a eureka moment when you work out are you extrovert or introvert I think it is and I think it allows you especially if you're introverted it kind of says to you it's okay for you to step back a little bit and give some time to yourself and to think about stuff and not have to react so quickly. I think that's something that me and you have talked about a lot learning the way each other have worked that I sometimes will go in head first and want answers and you need to sit back and you need to think and you need to come back to me with something and so learning about the way you work or the way that you're wired is really useful. We're a little bit yin and yang, you and I, I think, and you do very well to cope with me because I must feel like a ponderous dinosaur at times, just say, oh, I'm not sure. Mm, Hold on, let me take my time. And I'm conscious that that must be really, really annoying, especially when we get to the festival. If you're really, really highly introverted, just have a think about whether running a festival is the right thing for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in the few weeks leading up to the festival, it's very much a, Paul, you go and be over there and do that. And I got this. For the few weeks before, when the stress is there, I thrive in stress. And so I'm like, I got this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love seeing that. You come alive when that pressure really heightens. And especially over the festival weekend, you're like, I've got this. And you're sort of striding across fields and making decisions and helping people. And I'm sort of like just sitting down somewhere with my hood up on my hoodie thinking, I can't cope with this. <laughs> but Catherine, hey, we don't get to have that experience this year. No, we don't. Uh, we don't. Still not over it. Still not over it. I think that the thing that I'm realising, the more it creeps up to that time that we would normally be in the field, the things that I'm really missing about it are the people. I thought I was over it. But I, as the weeks get closer now, I keep on catching myself and I actually find myself getting quite emotional about it because it's a real pang. It's a sense of loss. It's a sense of grief. And like you, I picture all these faces 
which are a really, really important part of my life. They give me life and I'm not going to see them this year. You know, we can FaceTime, we can email, we can Zoom. It is not the same. It's not the same. The festival is a massive collaborative experience. And that weekend itself, we're working in collaboration with around 1,500 volunteers all coming together on that weekend to do something really good and to do something that's really important to us. And I'll miss that. Although I feel like we've been using that sadness because obviously we are planning to do something over the festival weekend. And I think that grief and that sadness and what we will miss is is kind of informing that because we're trying to create a space, especially on that Saturday, that 29th of August, when everybody can come together And we can not only engage with wonderful panels and music, but we're purposely creating lots of communal social spaces. We're going to have a Jesus Arms that you can go and chat to people in. We're going to have tables in the Jesus Arms where you can go and have smaller chats. We're going to have a foundry where we can have roundtable discussions. We're going to have a volunteers lounge. We're going to have memories shared from people and hellos from different artists that have been to the festival over the weekend. So... That's how we can use that grief, I think. So, Paul, what is your dream booking for the festival? I already know the answer to this. Well, they're all old, middle-aged and beyond grumpy men. (laughs) A bit like myself. Because I want to make the festival in my own image, of course, Catherine. (laughs) Uh, now, I guess, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you don't want to give your secrets away because sometimes these in the future, these things might come true. I think you can tell yours because it might be a few years. OK, OK. Although he does have views that I disagree with around Israel-Palestine, Nick Cave would be, uh, I think for me, he would be a dream booking. I have got others, but there's something about him, his life, his artistry, his eloquence, his songwriting his awkwardness and his deeply difficult mysteriousness that I absolutely love. And I think he's an incredibly deeply spiritual person as well in a very surprising and abrasive way. And I'd love to get him to the festival and just chat to him about what he thinks. Be amazing. He wouldn't even need to sing, really. I doubt whether we could ever, ever get him to come and do a gig beyond our reach. But just an in-conversation with Nick Cave and I'd go and lie down and be happy forever. (laughs) How about you? I think you know mine. I think I do. Well, I've got a couple, actually. So I would love to get Patti Smith to the festival. Ooh, Patti Smith. Yeah. I just think she's so cool. She's a fierce woman, wonderful songwriter, poet, in the Hall of Fame, activist. I think someone once called her like the rock and roll poet laureate. (laughs) Yeah. She's just fierce. Fierce. And, you know, I, I grew up listening to kind of like and idolising in some way rock and roll music. And most of those bands were had men at the forefront. And that rock and roll lifestyle was kind of a bit hedonistic. And, you know, even though I like the music, there was something that jarred to me with art and that kind of selfish, I guess, lifestyle. But Patti Smith's never done that, I don't think. I feel like her art is coming from her heart and I love that. That's what I look for when I'm programming for Greenbelt. Yeah. So, Patty Smith, your dream booking, but you said dream bookings. You said you perhaps might have some more. 
Alabama Shakes. Oh, yes. Brittany Howard, what a voice. What a songwriter. Yeah, I mean, she is powerful and awesome. That would be incredible. Yeah, I feel like I've seen them play so many times and every time I see her sing, I feel like she is singing like it is the last time that she is going to sing that song. You can read every bit of emotion and every word that's coming out of her mouth. You can read it on her face. Oh, I love that. I love those type of musicians because you don't feel like you're being lied to. You feel like you're being shared with. I love, I love, love her songwriting and her music because it's bluesy, it's grimy, it's dirty, it's really vibey. But at the same time, for me as a believer, it's gospel. She sings gospel music and Mm -hmm. I find it really moving because I think she's incredibly vulnerable in her lyrics and what she writes about. I think she just lays it all out there. I love artists who wear their heart on their sleeves in that way. Yeah, she would be amazing. She would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) This is great, Paul. Who else? Who else we get in? Well, we've just been doing musicians today. And, you know, we're not just about musicians and music at the festival. Uh, You know, we ask George Monbiot every single year. Do you know what I love about him is every single year he personally replies and he's so polite and so apologetic, but he can never make it. I know. It's it's bank holiday weekend, isn't it? So a lot of people are with their families and stuff and you can't really complain about that. But Another fantastic speaker activist who I would love to bring to the festival. I know you would too. In fact, you made me more aware of her work uh, than I've ever been is Angela Davis yeah. from the States. What a booking that would be. <laughs> oh, man, it would just be incredible. You know, in terms of speaking truth to power, Angela Davis, she, yeah, what a, what a dream booking. Anybody that's been worth having at Greenback over the last few years, you know, those kind of standout bookings, they've taken time and they should take time because we don't want artists to just turn up, play and leave not really knowing where they are. We want to bring artists into our community. We want to show them our community. And so, you know, with Russell Brand, that booking took four years. And especially the last year was just us talking to him about the kind of festival we are and about the space that we're creating. And the same thing happened with Pussy Riot and the same thing happened with Belarus Free Theatre. You know, it's important. And I love it when artists are interested in what we're doing and and those things take time. They really do. We had an email in, actually, from someone who'd listened to the podcast and they were saying, hey, look, don't be afraid to celebrate and be clear about the faith aspects of the festival. And I think they're right. Absolutely. But often when we're having these conversations and these invitations and these persuasions that can, as you say, take years, it took five years for us to get Billy Bragg to come to the festival for the first time. The the Christian, the faith aspect is a really tricky one to get through with people. It's not that you're embarrassed. It's not that you're ashamed. It's not that you don't want to say stuff about uh, that really vital uh, ingredient in the green belt mix. But it's a trigger word. It's, you know, as soon as you mention the word Christian or church, those are trigger words. And they set off all sorts of hairs running in people's minds. And they think, oh, <laughs> hold on. Because understandably, people have got very different experiences of faith and Christianity and church. And, and so 
sometimes it takes a long time to get through those sorts of nuances with people because you don't want people arriving in a field of thinking oh my word what have I come to <laughs> we want to be completely open and and with, I remember when Don Letts came and did a DJ set even though I'd been really clear with him on email to and fro about the nature of the festival he arrived he said oh my word it's a Christian festival and uh, he was absolutely fine about it by the way and he really loved being with us for the day <laughs> but I thought okay yeah note to self Paul you must be really 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 clear with people about the space they're coming to for me especially with my past that buzz term of Christianity or faith conjures up a very restrictive and almost harsh way to treat people because that's how I was brought up I was taught faith in a very different way which was all about rules and regulations and who was wrong and who was right and there's no gray area in between and it it wasn't really about loving people and embracing people it definitely wasn't about activism and trying to do good things to change the world and putting yourself on the front line to do that it was much more about living very politely quietly and towing the line yeah and yeah and um, i'm glad to see catherine that you still follow all those tenets absolutely (laughs) (laughs) talking of stuff that people see at the festival that have really made a change in their lives we had a really lovely email in from david shepherd didn't we yeah See, this is one of the things that I love about Greenbelt. So he talked about how Greenbelt inspired him and now he has this kind of fair trade shop with his wife. And before I came to Greenbelt, I kind of wasn't really engaged with any of faith communities at all. I'd kind of written that all off in my youth and I was engaged more in an arts and activism kind of community. And then what I experienced from Greenback over the years is how much people are inspired and how much people are changing their life. I've never met a group of people that have actually gone out and are doing so much good in the world. Every single year we get to hear about people who've done incredible things. And I remember an email we got in from a young woman and she said, as a result of the theatre that I've seen at Greenbelt, I've completely changed course. And I think she was studying in Paris at the circus school. Yeah, the Jacques Lecoq yeah. circus school, one of the best circus schools in um, and clowning schools in the world, really. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's amazing. Sarah Corbett is our special guest for this conversation on this podcast. Are you looking forward to this, Catherine? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So, I mean, we won't make too much uh, a deal about introducing her because the conversation tells the story about who Sarah is and the work that she's done. We're really proud and excited because she's also a Greenbelter. She's grown up coming to Greenbelt and, you know, that always feels good. Where are you? I'm in East London on a very busy main road. So if you hear sirens, it's nothing's happening bad near me. It's just going past the flat. But that accent isn't an East London accent, is it, Sarah? So where (laughs) where are you from originally? I'm from West Everton in Liverpool, but I've been in London 11 years. So when I go up to Liverpool, people are like, that's not a Scouse accent. Where are you from? And in London, people are like, that's not a London accent. Where are you from? But I'm proudly from West Everton. 
I have the same. I'm I'm from the black country, so every now and again when I'm tired or angry, I slip yeah. really into black country. Yeah. If I'm talking to my sister, no one knows what we're saying because we get really scouse and really fast. <laughs> so Sarah, you've you've grown up coming to the festival, is that right? Yeah. yeah. My mum had three of us all under the age of five. Um wow. and we go every year and they loved it and we loved it. And then as I'm sure many of your listeners will remember there was a period of it being really muddy so we sort of had a sabbatical for a few years when we were little because my mum I think just couldn't cope with these little toddlers getting stuck in the mud and we were crying walking down fields but we we went back and it's definitely a you know a family fixture I, I love it I learned so much for my own faith and it's a chance to see my parents and my siblings and my church families. And yeah, I totally love Greenbelt. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's one of the things then that's been a part of your life, but you know, when Catherine and I were reading into you and your background, you've been campaigning and into activism for, well, as long as you can remember, how, how did that all begin? Where does, where does that come from in your life? Yeah, I mean, I, me and my mum joke a little bit that I was an activist since I was in the womb because my dad's still the local vicar in West Everton, so hasn't moved, which is quite unusual. My mum was a nurse and then community activist, and now she's a politician. And a lot of the community meetings around local social housing that needed to, to be better or education or gangs issues, or a lot of local and global issues like South Africa apartheid, those conversations would happen in the vicarage in our back kitchen with lots of people planning and getting frustrated about losing campaigns or trying to change campaigns for us to, you know, stay on track. So ever since I was tiny, I've always been around community action. When I was eight, my dad's only sabbatical he ever took, we went to South Africa when um, Mandela had just got out to learn what they were doing around um, activism and all of the peace and reconciliation work that we could learn from. So it's been in my blood and it's been in my family and always had posters of Martin Luther King around the house and um, discussions around how we could live out our faith and be, you know, active citizens and and stand up for justice it was just sort of ingrained in us in the best way not in a brainwashing forced way but I've always been part of it and there was a there's a photograph of me on the front of the local paper age three standing outside social house and we were squatting in there's photographic evidence of me being an activist age three that sounds amazing and uh, have you ever had a period of time where you've rebelled against that you've thought you know growing up with that all the time you've thought why can't I just have a quote-unquote normal family or, you know, children often rebel against what their parents are doing. Have you ever had that moment of... Yeah, I mean, good point. I definitely, you know, I get really upset by injustice and when people hurt others. So even when someone picks on someone at school, I'll hold back the tears even though they're not picking on me. Like, I've always been a very sensitive child, but I've always seen my parents' response to everything is, how can we be part of the solution, not the problem? And what would Jesus do? And how can we be loving and treat people how we want to be treated? So it's always been like a default of not, I'll ignore that, but 
there are things we can do, big and small. So it never felt like a chore. I always feel upset when I see injustice and we see it firsthand on our doorstep as well as, you know, global campaigns we'd work on and, and you get the Christian aid newsletters in the post. So we always knew what was going on in the world. Um, my rebellion in some ways, Catherine, is I'm an introvert and I don't like being loud and I like being on my own and I like quiet contemplation. So I, I without realizing maybe until like the last five years, I was always looking at where can I do quiet activism because I'm not good at the loud stuff. And does it always have to be loud? And do we always have to do big brash stuff? Can it be quiet conversations with people that others will never hear about? I guess in one way, my rebellion was, does activism have to be this this way or could it be another way i think it's a um, testament to you sarah that you know i've been in and around greenbelt for a lot of years and that might make you think that i'm just jaded and bored with it all but it still really really excites me and hearing people like you speak really really still energize and excite me and to be able to use the phrase what would jesus do in a way that i don't regard as cringeworthy or a cliche is you know You've achieved something there. And I don't just bat an eyelid when you say that. You know, there are other people when I hear that phrase and that when I hear that said, who I won't mention on this <laughs> podcast, who, <laughs> who I'd really struggle with. But it um, yeah, strikes me that there's a real integrity and a consistency about your life that that just that's exactly right. You know, that's the right phrase to use. I think as well, though, like I read so much on neuroscience and psychology and how people change their minds and how change happens. And it's fascinating because the more I read about how the brain works, about how we interact with each other, the more I bring it back to, oh, my word, Jesus was really clever at that. Like, how do people change their mind? Not by you telling them what to think, but by intriguing people, by telling stories, by getting them to think that they came up with the solution rather than you facilitate it. And that's exactly what he did. You know, everything was about stories, it was about parables, it was about if you were that person, how would you feel? It was about having those quiet times away from the crowds to reflect and to regain your energy. And so the more I sort of look outside of my faith, the more I'm like, damn, this Bible thing is like pretty on point. <laughs> and Sarah, so you... um this wasn't just a, a hobby for you, activism. You started to make it your life. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and then what brought you into craftivism? Yeah, I mean, I never see activism as a hobby. I I think I really struggle not to do anything, which is why I'm always prone to burnout even as a craftivist. Because when you see stuff happening, I believe in activism. I've seen it work. We've all seen it work throughout our whole history. We've seen where it doesn't work, but it can work. So for me to ignore injustices, I just don't think I could actually do it. And if anything, I have to be really um, strict on what news I watch. I read Positive News magazine, which really empowers me rather than just makes me led by fear I have to be super strict on where I have the most influence and power and which campaigns I don't and I find that really upset and to be like actually I'm not someone that can have loads of influence around Syria but with my audience and with my influence I could do stuff around the fashion industry so I have to be I never see it as a hobby but I always have to be 
I always have to remind myself that, you know, I've got to fill my cup before I can help others and not burn out. In a way, working in activism wasn't a choice. It was, um, as Paul said, I am obsessed with activism. I want it to be as loving and effective as possible. And I want the world to fulfill its potential as a happy, healthier, harmonious place for everyone. And I don't think I could do any other jobs, Catherine, because I'm so obsessed with activism and it works. And, you know, I'm really proud to say we've helped change laws and policies and hearts and minds around the world. And if it, if my craftivism work and my gentle protest work didn't work, I wouldn't do it. And if I wasn't good at protesting and working with charities now or with organisations like art sector and, and different sectors... If I wasn't good at it, I'd do something else. So I'm always thinking, where can I be of best use? You know, where can I use the gifts and talents God's given me and the the strange upbringing I've had and the context I've got? And like anyone, you know, where can I just be a good human being? So on my deathbed, whether that's tomorrow or in 100 years, I can feel, you know, that I've actually, as much as possible, been part of making the world a better place and more part of the solutions and the problems. This journey has increasingly led you to this particular niche, as it were, within the world of activism, which you it feels like you've made your own. But a question that Catherine and I had was craftivism. Is that yours or is that a tradition that comes from somewhere else? This idea of using craft as part of protest where does that come from yeah so the word was coined in 2003 by an american lady called betsy Greer, while she was actually living in east london with my friend who's a knitter um and she noticed that lots of knitting circles she saw as very political you know the personal is political they were make doing and mending and talking about um ethical fashion and talking about community so Betsy Greer was like, this is political because the personal is political. So I came to craftivism in 2008 after picking up a cross-stitch kit on a train to Glasgow as a burnt-out activist and doubting the effectiveness of activists, um, activism and just wanting to use my hands and do a bit of cross-stitch because I couldn't do my watercolours on a train because it would get a bit messy. And I noticed how the process helped me think more critically. People were asking me on the train what I was stitching, which us, you know, Brits are not very good at talking to strangers, so that shocked me a bit. So I googled craft and activism thinking there's something in this. I never saw craft as something to use in activism, but it felt like there was something in it and the word existed, but there wasn't any groups to join or projects to do. And her website absolutely looked throughout history of Gandhi using his spinning wheel, of people, um, Chilean appliques being made in secret when Pinochet was dictator and people using craft to grieve as well as to share, you know, genocide stories. So it was always there. But for me, I'm always bringing it to activism now. Our approach is gentle protest, which is unique and we have our manifesto. But there's other craftivists out there just like the punk movement you know you talk about punk music and you've got all these different bands that sound completely different but they're all under the umbrella of punk it's similar with craftivism you can crochet a voodoo doll of, of a world leader and you'll get far more likes on instagram than my work but i'd say that that's more harmful and helpful because you're focusing on personality not policy you're demonizing you're othering you're fueling um hate and division and that is not what I want to do. 
I think that leads us really nicely into we've got a clip, a 10 minute clip of you from your talk in 2017 at Greenbelt Festival. And I think it would be good to have a little listen to that now. So I was really frustrated with activism that just demonised power holders, screamed at them, told them what to do rather than asked them whether they had any knowledge on their job that they'd been doing for 30 years that they might be able to engage with. It was very transactional and it wasn't gentle, it wasn't loving, it was treating them as the other which is what we've been talking about, the green belt, not looking at their face, not seeing them as human, made us feel better in the short term, but not the long term. So I wanted a way to engage power holders as critical friends rather than aggressive enemies. And again, using something very delicate that uses all the senses, so not just the language of positivity. So I never, in all of my work, whether it's craft or just activism, I never use against or fight or them. It's always very inclusive language about encouraging. It's always very positive. And language is just as important as colours and fonts and all of that, which you know. So one example to share with you is that I worked with Share Action who are heavily involved with Citizens UK if anyone knows Share Action they do shareholder activism and I had the CEO um, who's incredible woman Catherine Howarth who's one of my sheroes and have a massive campaign crush on her which is a little bit embarrassing Um, but we're friends now so it's fine and she emailed me saying I've got your weird little book and I've just read it And it's so weird, and we've been trying to get a large retail company to um, pay the living wage for three years, and we've had no... um no success. We've had no meetings. We haven't even been able to speak to them one-to-one and get in the same room as them. And we don't know what's happening. And I think your stuff is so odd um, that I might as well ask you to do something. (laughs) Which was a nice compliment in some ways. I had five weeks before the AGM where she told me this. Um, So I thought, okay, well, what are we going to do? So they're not listening. The CEO is completely ignoring. I googled him a bit and thought, yeah, he is not budging on this issue at all. They tried everything. Um, So I thought, well, who's above the CEO? Well, it's the board. The board members are... The CEO is accountable to the board members. So I looked at their company and I saw, who do they listen to? They listen not... Sadly, they might not. They've already done stuff where people who directly don't have the living wage in that company, they weren't listening to that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to target the people that are their core audience, who happen to be mostly in a crude way, but what the evidence we saw was white middle-class women who buy for their families and will be a a long-term supporter of their company and a loyal customer. So I looked across the UK, so it wasn't London Centre, where I'm based, picked 14 craftivists and also five craftivists to engage with five of their celebrity models in their last advertising campaign and five craftivists to give a gift to the five chief financial officers of the biggest um, investor companies in that company because they're going to listen to those investor companies more than me and they'll listen to their customers more than me. And I said, I want you to Google this board member I've gave you and beforehand I'd looked at who the board members were and who I thought had similarities with these I call them hardcore craftivists which makes them sound scary they're just committed geeky good ones that could rely on and I said google everything about them 
from what colour they were to what their hobbies are, look on LinkedIn at what their jobs have been in the past, whether they're a trustee for something else to see what they're passionate about, whether they come across shy and introverted or very loud and flamboyant, try and figure out what makes them tick as a human being. And then embroider a handkerchief that we had bought from that shop to show that we were customers, not boycotters. And I gave them all their handkerchiefs and posted it to them. And I gave them craft of thought questions to read while they were stitching for hours. And on every handkerchief, we said a quote that we thought that person would engage with. So my board member was quite a quiet woman, but highly had done amazing stuff in business. And she wore lots of purple, as lots of women do. Um, so I had a, a purple dotted handkerchief for her from, like, from the company that she's a board member for. And I, quote, I stitched a quote from Rose, um, Rosa Parks on it, which I should have written down and I forgot, but you can find it on our website. Um, I put a quote on there thinking, Rosa Parks was an amazing woman and quiet and introverted and did what she had to do, but didn't want to stand up. And this woman's quite similar, I think. So I'm going to stitch this message on. I'm going to do it in a beautiful way that's attractive rather than intimidating. And we're going to put them all in boxes. Some of the handkerchiefs had flowers on because a board member was a trustee of Kew Gardens. One had music notes on with a quote from a musician about social change because he was involved in the Royal Opera House. So we tried to make our craft about them. So it's a very humble form of activism where we knew we didn't have the power they had the power and how can we engage them to encourage them and say don't blow it use your power for good we know this is a tough job but I want this little object to encourage you in what you can do and it was never demonizing or transactional it was very much saying we don't think you're awful people we actually are presuming you're probably lovely people but you might be busy you've clearly got lots of pressure from your shareholders and I, I became a shareholder so I could go to the AGM and you hear all of these questions saying why haven't I got more money why aren't you like these fast fashion cheap companies making loads of profit and the board are sitting there like oh man so really about empathizing with the power holder whilst making stuff for them putting yourself in their shoes which could be really difficult if they're a different power holder and challenging yourself challenging your preconceptions challenging the presumptions you might have about them challenging whether you're you hate them or whether you're showing love while you're stitching them and then we wrapped them up in little boxes we wrote handwritten letters with them saying I was stitching your hanky for hours and I was thinking about you and your job and I was thinking about people that work for you who I love because I love your company and about how if I was on the minimum wage in this world we're living in now it would be bloody tough so it would be brilliant if you became a living wage employer you're so influential in the retail space with low-end retail as well as high-end if you change the way and pioneer the way in the living wage you'll have ripple effects and wouldn't that be brilliant so it was still humble but it was encouraging and we hand delivered them so not throwing them in their face we did it quite embarrassingly at the ends of the AGM because we were all quite shy people that you don't expect to be the activists and we're like we've made you these I hope you like them and half of them got them before and half of them be because the, the staff members wanted to get them all um, to give them before the AGM for some reason. I think they thought there might be something scary in them. 
And afterwards, the chair of the board had a good conversation with us. All of them, we spoke to them one-to-one, so very gentle. We haven't shared what those board members told us in confidence because we'd lose their trust. But we understood what made them all tick. We had a little huddle at the end. So before that, I said to all the craftivists, when you hand it, hand it over, make sure you do it with a smile. Make sure you go in with an open question and not a demand or a statement. Say, I've made you this. I really hope um, you can think about it and have a think and I hope it encourages you in your role and then we found out from them what their thoughts were and quite quickly we're quite savvy human beings you could tell from body language from the way people spoke we huddled at the end figured out who were the blockers who were just like I'm not listening making excuses that we just thought maybe we can't change their mind we figured out who were the allies who quietly told us stuff and also who were the ones that might actually be even stronger allies. So we got so much intel from giving gifts in gentle, thoughtful ways that are small um, and not big and brash that really helped our campaign. And for 14 months, then we did no craft, annoyingly. We just had boring meetings with them. We had quiet, boring meetings. We didn't tell people that we were having these meetings. We fed in all the information that they needed. But we always started with... We're going to presume, whether it's right or wrong, we're going to presume that they want to be lovely human beings and pay the living wage, and we're going to feed everything in. And after 14 months, the chair of the board had announced that 50,000 of their lowest paid staff were going to get the living wage, which was incredible. Thank you. Sadly, they're not accredited living wage employers, so we're still campaigning on that. But he also spoke to me at other meetings very quietly, saying that without your hankies, this wouldn't have been on our agenda. It wasn't on our agenda at all, but we were so moved by them. And you had all the evidence there to say this is good for business as well, which was important for us to read. But it really stuck with us. And you all seem nice. And if you were out, and he said this word for word, if you were outside shouting at us, we wouldn't be speaking to you. And I thought, this is where gentleness can work. We need lots of forms of activism, but if we can be gentle, I think we should start there. If we have to be more aggressive, as a last-term option, then possibly. But where possible, I think we can be gentle and thoughtful and considered, but still make them accountable. And it really did have an impact, and it built us relationships with them. And I think that if we didn't do it quietly, we also made sure that when they announced it, we didn't claim the win for ourselves. We said, well done to this company. You've got a little bit bit to go with accreditation, but this is brilliant. So proud. We love your company. We're going to shop more in your company. We want accreditation, so we're not going to let you off the hook, but well done. We never claimed the win for ourselves because we would have lost that trust with them and that relationship with them, just like you would with a mate. If your mate changes your mind and you start celebrating, changes the whole dynamic, doesn't it? I'm cringing now at all of the words I got wrong and all of how not coherent it is how intimidating your audience is <laughs> I got very nervous I don't know how you could be cringing at that if that was me I'd be I'd be strutting down the street thinking I was nailing life one of my favorite things about it is that you presume that people are lovely yeah. 
you go into that presuming they're lovely and presuming they know things and with a respect for them. Yeah, which is really hard, especially with people you disagree with, especially with people who've got a track record of doing awful stuff. But again, with my reading, like I love Brené Brown, um, who's an incredible social worker and um, an author. And that's one of her points. She says, even if it's not true, it's much better for your own well-being if you can try and see the best in people and hope that they can change. And again, that comes for me, that comes back to my faith and where I grew up, where there was lots of young white lads who were in gangs and, and struggling in lots of ways. As soon as you labeled them and wrote them off, of course they'd get worse. Whereas if you have someone, you know, I often say that we never say it publicly, but in a way, one of the principles is the way gentle protest is, is that we talk about how it's a bit like when a loved one says to you, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. It's It feels so persuasive and so gentle. And it seems like you have to be so patient yeah. um, with this form of craft, with this form of activism. As well as you seeing it work, Earlier on, you were telling us, you know, if you didn't see the, that this was working, you wouldn't do it. Yeah. But is there a, a critique about other forms of activism in what you're doing? Do you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. And you sound very diplomatic in the way you're saying it, Paul. <laughs> um, I, so I, every, for me, everything's context by context, person by person, um, time and, you know, everything we do is about, is about people and being people focused. So there's absolutely a need to get on the street sometime as a reaction to do demonstrations outside embassies. And I do challenge people to say, look, love should be threaded through everything you do. You can shout loudly, but in a loving way, or you could do it in a really hateful way. And we as humans can tell the difference. So, and I do challenge the charity sector when I think that they're being reactive and not strategic if they're being led by fear or by anger rather than by love um you know when you talk about gentle protest it can sound very passive and weak but actually it's really hard work because you have to be more mature you know we wouldn't throw eggs at a colleague um in a meeting yet we sometimes throw eggs at politicians or ceos and i don't think that's helpful yeah completely have you ever had a moment where you haven't been able to successfully restrain yourself in that because yeah. I know you know if I work, walked past certain politicians or people in power I would my first instinct would be maybe to throw an yeah. egg and I know I don't know that that wouldn't achieve anything but that's just a natural human instinct of anger yeah and it's funny it's funny because I get lots of people going I wish I was more like you and you know I was naturally a gentle person I am not I'm a very angry <laughs> person I'm angry at how the world has got so much darkness in it that it just I think could be changed you know I'm fueled by anger but I also know that that burns me out and means I can't think properly I do my gratitude jar at night and I do my little gratitude prayers in the morning so I'm always focusing on like being in awe of the brilliant stuff in the world and then wanting to create more brilliant stuff. So I wonder, Sarah, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about, it's come out a few times when you've been speaking, about the fact that this gentleness isn't just an approach that is effective with those you want to persuade and to win round. It's a form of protest that also is caring and good for you as the protester. Yeah. And it just feels like we live in a world where 
being able to look after ourselves and our well-being seems more important than ever. And uh, and our world is stranger now than even the last time we had a Greenbelt Festival. Yeah. It's been a very, very strange and difficult time for a lot of people. And we know that mental health and well-being is, is going to be huge over the next few years as we emerge from this particular crisis, the pandemic. Can you say a little bit about that? Because it seems like it's an important concern for you and uh, it might be helpful for people to hear your approach to all of that. Yeah, I mean, I started crafting when I was working on a different project on a train to Glasgow. I used to love to paint and draw. Um, and then in my work, I was training young people to be activists. and I joined lots of activist groups and I was completely burning out. I didn't realize I was an introvert then. And now it makes lots of sense of why I was burning out. And I was doubting the effectiveness of a lot of activism, which was causing a huge amount of anxiety for me. I was like many of us not aware of how much fearful media I was I was soaking up from the news from newspapers you know and lots of binary arguments you know the media likes to simplify things and have very binary headlines to grab attention and we've got you know all of the clickbait stuff happening now that you didn't a few years ago and I wasn't aware of the effect that was having on me and by picking up this cross-stitch kit um, even though I'd never crafted before or been interested in it particularly, but I wanted to use my hands. I was aware I was tapping a lot and not being creative. You know, I've been doing quite a few virtual workshops, which aren't as effective as a physical sensory space, but doing them, people are still saying how when it's so hard to go from absorbing so much information to then reflecting on it, it's really uncomfortable to reflect on a lot of issues that were part of the problem. You know, Black Lives Matter, I'm doing a huge amount of behind the scenes work with women who've got white fragility issues and we're, we're talking through what can we do, where are we best placed? And it's such an enormous issue and something we've got to be aware that we've been part of the problem. And craft is an incredible tool to say, we need to lean into the un this uncomfortableness of being aware of where we are part of the problem. How can we be part of the solution? And let's use craft as a comforting tool to delve into that uncomfortableness. You know, Martin Luther King always talked about how activists need a tough mind and a tender heart, not one or the other. You need to have a sharp mind and be strategic, but you need a, a, a tender heart and that gentleness of the fruit of the spirit. Um, so I'm always challenging people to delve deeper, but I know that by using their hands in a safe space, they are in a in a comfortable place where they can delve deeper. Whereas if they're on their own without craft in their hand, I think it would be potentially harmful for me to get people to to delve deep because they could end up in a downward spiral, which is just not fair and not responsible of me to say. But using your hands is an incredible mental health tool that clinicians and neuroscientists and psychologists have all got evidence of how, how powerful it is for the personal development and for critical thinking. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, Sarah. <laughs> it's It's just so fascinating. And not only, I mean, I guess some people could think, oh, it's, it's that that gentle form of activism is not going to produce any results, but you've shown how it produces results. And sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, sometimes you can have the best recipe for some campaigns and it'll work in one situation and not in another. But we just got to keep on trucking, you know. That, that seems like a very uncraftivist like image, keep on trucking. But 
<laughs> Where can people look to find out more um, about you, about your work, about your books, and about possibly you know other ins- other places they can get inspiration for this form of, of um, gentle activism? This is where I'm not very good at pitching it all, but everything's on the website. So craftivist-collective.com and we've got the books and all the kits that are ethically made. And I have people who adopt a craftivist, which is me, for £10 a month so I can keep doing all the work that's not paid but really vital. Um, And there's loads of projects there, loads of top tips, loads of videos, loads of podcasts. And if anyone's still stuck then they can just contact me on email or social media and I can send them different different links or, or different um, top tips. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Sarah. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's great what you're doing um, and I love Green Belt. So keep up the great work and I'm excited to hear all the other podcast shows. Maybe we need to think more, what would Sarah do? Definitely not. I have huge flaws to work on. <laughs> don't go down there. You've got Jesus. You don't need me. Woman, crazy. <laughs> Yet again, another fantastic conversation with an inspiring guest. Yeah, she's wonderful. I think you particularly enjoyed speaking with Sarah, didn't you, Catherine? What is it about her that really inspires you? I feel like I connect with her in in some ways when she talks about how she was quite a sensitive child or she, she gets really emotionally affected by injustice, and I do too. But she has the intelligent and the tools to be able to hone that in a way that is really helpful whereas I just tend to get really angry and upset so I think that it's really inspiring that that level of self-control and thinking in that moment where can I be useful where can I have influence and what things can't I have influence on because you can't change everything and when you're an activist I think that is in some ways, the hardest thing to do is to go, I can't do anything about Syria, but I can do something about unethical practices in the fashion industry. Uh, I'm like you. I tend to get very cross about something, but then I'm not sure how effective I ever am in my responses, to be honest. And I found that really inspirational about Sarah. And what about that upbringing? I mean, you mentioned in our introduction about the fact that she describes this sort of activist upbringing that mixes her dad being a vicar with taking action on social housing and squatting in inadequate housing and stuff. That upbringing sounds just amazing and quite unusual. Love that. I love the idea that the local vicar was not just, you know, giving sermons in a building, but was out in the community fighting for the things that he believes in. And, you know, I've had my problems with religion and how it was presented to me as I was growing up but the things that I love about it is I love that idea of Jesus at the center of something being this rebel being this kind person approaching everybody with kindness and approaching everybody like they're not bad people and things can change approaching people with respect and when necessary flipping some tables flip those tables yeah i mean and as a family when sarah was just eight years old getting to go to south africa and see how things were working out with the truth and reconciliation commission after nelson mandela got released i mean 
that story, that political happening was sort of seminal for all those of us. But, you know, her family up sticks and actually went there to see how it was working, what it felt like, what people were doing. That's just incredible. Crazy. I can't even think what I was doing at eight years old, but it definitely wasn't anything like that. She feels like, you know, in many ways, if we wanted to create Greenbelt people in some sort of weird, strange, Machiavellian scientific plan, they'd hopefully all turn out quite like Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) And in the same way, you know, we were talking about how we're not very good at activism, but in some way, our activism comes out in what we're doing at the festival. We love art and music and we have a passion for activism and we combine that to do what we can do. And she has combined it with craft and ideas of being introverted and gentle protest. And that's what she's doing. And of course, there is still the need for people to be out there in the streets, standing up and saying no. And so I like the idea and that allowance of people to do activism and to stand up for what they believe in in any way that they can and have the knowledge and expertise to do. In the intro, we were talking about being extrovert or introvert. And I like Sarah's approach because it gives me hope as an introvert. I find street protests, which I have joined whenever I can, really quite problematic because it just doesn't suit my personality i find it a little bit overwhelming the idea of joining in and shouting out slogans even when i used to support a football team and go and see them play i'd still struggle to sort of like join in with all the chanting i've just never been that sort of joiner in like that i prefer just to do things on the inside yeah give me gentle activism anytime <laughs> things I also really respect about the way that she approaches people is to approach people as if they are skilled, knowledgeable, intelligent, good, respectful people, but they might not have known a particular thing. They might not have engaged in a particular thing. And what she does is just go, hey, you're a brilliant person and you have this power. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about using your power for this? Did you know that this is how the fashion industry works? I like that. I think that that's how my mind gets changed. And I like that approach with kindness. Yeah, I think that what it does is it seems to cut through that binary thing where evil, good, right, wrong, bad, I know what's right. I think it cuts through that and it says, look, hold on, we're all human beings here. We're trying to make our way in the world. We all get caught up in various ways of working and living that a myriad of things affect that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that people are channeled into just being completely despotic and evil or good and lovely. It's not like that. And I think that her methodology cuts through that binary things and and says, look, hold on. Let's not just stand on two sides of a fence shouting at each other. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, when we talk about Israel-Palestine at the festival, we have met people through the festival and from our trips there. We know that there's not evil people living on one side of the wall and good people living on the other side of the wall. It doesn't work like that. You know, systems are at play. Human beings, when we get the chance to meet with and talk with each other and listen to one another and start to understand each other better, surprising how well we get on oftentimes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that one of the biggest problems at the moment is that kind of binary thinking. You can kind of tie that into so many problems at the moment around race, around gender, around sexuality, around religion, 
it's not how life works. And you put down any of those arguments with people and at the core of it, those people would get along. They're still humans. They can still connect on certain things. They've reached that belief because of something in their past, because of the way they've been brought up. And understanding that and having those conversations is so important. And we seem like we're forgetting that. Or I guess it's easier just to be like, I'm right, you're wrong. It doesn't take any thinking. It doesn't take a lot of time. The approach that Sarah is working on and that she's talked to us about there is it does take more time. There's a lot of patience involved, careful research, thinking about what would be the best way to engage that person. Yes, a lot of time. Change does take time, though, doesn't it? Yeah. No big changes happen overnight. There's never really been evidence of that. Things take time. And um, why don't we just all get along with each other while we're figuring that out? <laughs> One thing that Sarah was talking about that really made me think of you, Catherine, because I think we've touched on it a few times in the, this podcast series, is the way that she does or doesn't engage with the news. Mm. She says about very similar to what I've heard you say, actually about the fact that just too much news just isn't good for you. Yeah, I don't think it is. I mean, I'm also happy to be proven wrong and I don't think that is a black and white conversation either. Do you think you need to know about everything that's going on in the world? Because it's a conversation that's quite interesting to me because especially with the job that I'm doing and my passion for activism, in some ways I feel like I do. I want to know, I want to be educated, I want to be able to help where I can and learn where I can. But the world's a massive place. How is that even possible? When I'm out running, I try and keep my eyes really open and my ears open. My ears open for birdsong. What am I hearing? My eyes open for the next pothole that I'm going to trip over and break the latest bone in my body. And I'm like that with life. I'm just trying to pay attention because <laughs> I find it fascinating. I love life and I love this world in which we live and I find it fascinating. So I try and keep my eyes open and my ears open. Lots of crap goes in. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of started to think to myself that I won't know everything now, but hopefully I'll be like a wise old 60-year-old. And, you know, by that point, I'll have a lot of wisdom. I'll be like a wise old Patty Smith. That's my aim. Like, I, you know, I don't know everything yet. I can't solve everything yet. I'll keep doing my bits and eventually I'll be Patty Smith. <laughs> and eventually I'll be Nick Cave. <laughs> oh, dear. So... That's another podcast episode, another amazing conversation. Next week, our special guest is Abdurrahman Malik. And we're really looking forward to that conversation too. We'd really love to know what you think about what you're hearing from us and also any ideas or any bits of information that you can give to me and Paul that we can chat about. And there are a few ways of doing that. And they are... On our social media channels, you can get in contact with us. We are at Greenbelt Festival on Instagram and Facebook, and we are just at Greenbelt on Twitter. We've also got an email address that comes straight through to us that is stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. We're really enjoying getting those emails and reading them and reflecting on them in the podcasts. We've also set up a new dedicated podcast mailing list. We have our general emailing list, which we call Dispatches. But if you want to get specific information on a Friday about that week's podcast episode, then if you go to greenbelt.org.uk slash podcast, 
podcast, you can sign up for that mailing list there. And that will include little bits of information that we've talked about in the podcast, books to read, petitions to have a look at, organisations to look at. So I might join that. I've joined it. I can't wait to get the first one. And another thing to say is that each podcast, we're playing back a snippet of the recorded talk from the festival. And we just wanted you to know that every single one of our digital recorded talks archive is online right now and it's all free to access across this summer. So if you go to greenbelt.org.uk forward slash talks, there are more than 1,500 talks there to dig into and you can browse them by subject and speaker and year. Just loads to dig into. So fill your boots. We know we can't be together this year in a field, Paul. Oh, it is still it is too soon. <laughs> it's too soon. But we have got something planned on Saturday the 29th of August and a little bit planned on Sunday the 30th of August. So put those dates in your diary and we'll be coming out with more information about lineup and about what we're thinking and about tickets soon. Very very soon. <laughs> Thank you to Sarah Corbett for being our guest on today's podcast and to Daisy Ware Jarrett for producing us and making this all happen. And thanks to Paul Truman on our staff team as well. We'd also like to say a big thank you to Lee Baines of Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires for letting us use his amazing track, I Can Change, for the theme tune on our podcasts. And also to Kat and Josh on our Recorded Talks volunteer team for making us sound good by editing us so well. (laughs) 